Let's open with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump right into our text. Father, we come to you this morning in the name of your Son, Jesus. Uh, We praise you as the God from whom all blessings flow. We praise you as the God of our salvation. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have applied Christ's righteousness to us who have repented and followed you in faith. We ask this morning, Father, that you will speak to us, that you will reveal yourself to us. Though our flesh may be cold because of the weather outside, Father, may you warm our souls with the truth of your word. Father, bless the preaching of your word this morning, and may it bring you glory alone. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. If someone were to ask you, or ask us, why it is that we sing at church, I'm very curious as to what our response to that question would be. I'm very curious as to if we, if we would jump to an answer that we just have logged back in our minds. What would we say, well, it's, it's to prep our hearts for the preaching of God's Word. That's why we sing. That's the purpose for singing at church. Uh, maybe some would say, I don't, I don't know why we sing, but I'm not going to question why we do it. Some may say, well, it's just what we're supposed to do. The church always does it. I grew up in church. We sang, and then somebody preached, and we sang again, and then we left. There may be the answer that we, we worship because we want to, we want to feel something. We've got we to build up this, this feeling to get us right and ready to hear from God. And I think that might be one of the most dangerous reasons we may uh, believe that we sing because we, at that point, equate worship through song with with feeling happy, and we, and we present the idea that you have to have a smile on your face and a, and a joyful, joyful heart, and everything must be going well in your life. And if it's not, you have to ignore it and pretend like everything's okay. And that's not, that's not true with, with worship. That's not true with how we sing. Sometimes we need to sing songs of, of lament. Sometimes we need to sing songs where we repent of our sin. So it's not just about getting a feeling I would actually argue that all of these reasons miss the mark to certain degrees, some more than others, obviously. We, we don't sing out of obligation. There's a purpose to it, and it's not in order to obtain a special feeling. It's not in order to obtain a, a, a certain mindset. We worship through song as a response. It's a response to what God has revealed to us through his word. And we, we should see it modeled in our text this morning. We saw it modeled in... Uh, the text from Luke chapter 1 when Mary and when God reveals to Mary what exactly is going to happen with with her son she breaks out into a song and we heard this beautiful song that Mary sings in Luke chapter 1 and so I pray that we see that this morning in Judges chapter 5 but before we jump into our text I need to kind of recap what Judges is about and what happened in Judges chapter 4 because Judges 5 is actually part 2 to Judges chapter 4 um So in Judges, it picks up right where Joshua leaves off. Joshua and the Israelites enter the land of Canaan, which God had promised them throughout history. Uh, Joshua dies, new leadership takes over, and Israel falls into sin. They fall into false false worship. Uh, They begin to compromise with foreign nations, and they begin to worship false gods. And a cycle begins where they forget God, and they worship false gods. God uh, puts them under oppression by the enemy. After under, being under oppression for a few years, they begin to cry out to God. And God in his faithfulness raises up a judge, a deliverer, and he rescues them from that oppression. And then Israel returns to worshiping God. 
but not too long later they begin to forget God again and the cycle begins over and over and over throughout Judges. And in chapter 4 we see we're introduced to a new judge. It's actually the fourth judge in the series. And uh, his name is Barak. And uh, God, through his prophetess Deborah, calls Barak to, to, to raise up and to deliver Israel. And so we have Deborah the prophetess, we have Barak the deliverer, and we're also introduced to Jabin, the foreign king who is oppressing uh, Israel. He's oppressing the Israelites, and he has a general underneath him of this mighty army whose name is Sisera. And Barak begins to lead Israel in their conquest into uh, Canaan to take over King Jabin and, and his, his army. And throughout this battle, at one point, Jay, uh, Sisera, the general, has to retreat. And he decides to go to an ally's home. And upon arriving, the husband is not there, but the wife is. And so he seeks, seeks help from her. And she says, come on in, come on in. Sit down, lay down, take a rest. Uh, you've been running all day. And he asks for a glass of water. And instead, she gives some warm milk and a blanket and says, lay down, take a, take a nap, take a rest. And in the background, we learn that she is actually a follower of God. And so she's giving him one warm milk so he'll fall asleep, a blanket so he's comfortable, and as he's sleeping, she's a tent maker, and so she grabs a tent peg and a, and a mallet, she creeps over to him and puts it right to his temple and knocks him out and he's dead. And so in this story, we've realized that the, the last person in the story that you would assume would save God's people is the one to defeat the enemy. But that's not the end of the story. We pick up in chapter 5 where... Deborah and Barak begin to sing a beautiful song. They begin to sing a beautiful song in response to what God has just done in delivering Israel. So let's look at chapter 5 and let's listen to uh, this beautiful song that they sing together. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings. Give ear, O princes. To the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled. The heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord. Even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned. The travelers kept by the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was at the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way. To the sound of the musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates march the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, break out in song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives. O son of Abinoam, then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, the root, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. 
From Makir marched down the commanders, from Zebulun those who the lieutenant staff. The princes of Ishkar came with Deborah, and Ishkar faithful to Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben there was great searching of heart. Why did you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling of the flocks? For the clans of Reuben there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, and Dan, why did, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risk their lives to death, Naphtali too, to the heights of the fields. Then kings came, they fought, then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh, by the waters of Megiddo, they got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought, from the courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon, march on my soul with might. Then loud beat the horse's hoofs with galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Miraz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Most blessed be women of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand into the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he lay still, he fell dead. Out of the window she peered. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man? Spoil, spoil of dyed materials for Sisera? Spoil of dyed, dyed materials embroidered? Two pieces of dyed work embroiled for the neck as spoil? So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for 40 years. After hearing the lyrics to this beautiful song, it's helpful, helpful for us to note that this is not a clear-cut narrative. This, not is a, this is not a logical progression of an argument. Instead, this is a piece of literary art. This is poetry. This is an artistic retelling of what has just happened in Israel's history as described in chapter five, 4. And so in verse 1, we're, we're informed that Deborah and Barak sing this song together, not in order to build a case or, 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 or tell a story, but instead, because of what has just happened, they're moved to express praise to God. They're moved to worship. And this is the main thrust of Judges 5. As God reveals himself to us, our only appropriate response should be praise. As God reveals himself to us, our only appropriate response should be praise. But what is it about God that has driven Deborah and Barak to this praise? What exactly has God revealed to, him, to them about himself throughout this historical account? Well, Deborah, as a prophetess, understands what God has been doing and what he's done behind the scenes described in chapter 4. And so as we listen to this song sung by Deborah and Barak, we hear two certainties that we can cling to as God's people. 
We can, we, we can cling to the certainty that God is faithful to his word. God is faithful to his word. And our second certainty we can hold on to as we listen to this song is that God wars on behalf of his people. God wars on behalf of his people. Now again, as a poetic retelling, not a necessarily uh, a narrative, uh, this song doesn't structurally develop these two points. There's not a point one into point two after each verse. Instead, these are two themes that weave throughout the entirety of the song. So we'll see it in a few verses here, and then it picks back up a few verses later until the end of the song. So let us, let us follow these two certainties throughout the song this morning. First, God is faithful to his word. We first see this in, the, in, in verses 6 through 8. God is faithful to his word. Deborah sings that life in Israel had, had essentially died. Look at uh, verse 6. In the days of Shamgar... Uh, and in the days of Jael, Shamgar was the judge just prior to Deborah and Barak. And Jael was the unexpected hero of chapter 4. Things had gotten so bad that the highways were abandoned. Travelers kept to the byways. The Israelites couldn't even travel openly. They had to, they had to sneak around. They had to go, go behind the scenes. They had to travel at night. Because they were so worried about being attacked by the Canaanites. Verse 7 continues the description uh, the, village, the villagers ceased in Israel. Comfort of village life for the Israelites was done. It was no more. There was no, there was no longer a comfort to living there because the oppression had become so strong. If we look back in chapter 4, if you will, turn with me to chapter 4. In verse 3, there's a, a very short description of the type of oppression that was taking place. Verse 3 of chapter 4, Then the people of Israel cried out, uh, sorry, yes, for the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. For he, the foreign king Jabin, had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So Israel was facing a brutal reign of a cruel king who was known for having an advanced military like none other of the time. This is what they were up against. And reflecting on these horrible conditions in the lyrics of chapter 5, we're to remember that God is actually being faithful to his word. You see, at the beginning of Judges, God promised the Israelites, if you compromise what I've told you to do, if you neglect to do what I've called you to do, you're going to compromise and you're going to fall into false worship. And when that takes place, I'm not going to let the Canaanites leave. They're going to stay there. And then you're not going to have a friendly relationship with them like you think. They're actually going to oppress you. Because you failed to follow in my commands, I'm going to leave them in the land, and they're going to oppress you. And it's going to be difficult. And this is exactly what we see reinforced in in verse 8 of our song in chapter 5. Verse 8 of chapter 5, When new gods were chosen, then war was at the gates. Israel did exactly what God said they were going to do. New gods were chosen. They decided to worship the false gods of Canaan. But what does this tell us about God? Remember, the song's a response to what God has revealed about himself. But what does it tell us about God? It tells us he's just. He's justified in the judgment he executes on his people. Times had gotten so bad when war was upon them, as the end of verse 8 explains, that nobody, could, there, nobody was found to be able to fight for Israel. Things were not good for God's people. Because of their sin, God gave them into the desires of their hearts, and it warranted his judgment. 
But just as God is faithful to his promise of judgment, he's faithful to his promise of deliverance. Remembering that this is an artistic song, this is an artistic piece of literature, it doesn't flow in chronological order, and that's why verse 7 sticks out to us as a small ray of hope in the darkness. Deborah clarifies that these horrible conditions remained until one moment when she arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. She describes herself as a mother of Israel because in verse 8, as God's prophetess to Israel, she was taking care of Israel. She was executing legal judgments. She was speaking on behalf of the Lord. The Lord was speaking to Israel through her. She was caring for God's people. She was like a mother to Israelite, to the Israelites. She even called Barak. She said, Barak, God is calling you to deliver Israel. Get up and do this. And that begins his conquest to fight the king Jabin, the foreign king of the Canaanites. See, God had promised in Leviticus 26 that he would judge his people by means of oppression if they rejected him and fell into false worship. But he also promised that he would deliver them from that oppression if they would repent and believe and follow after him again. This is exactly what the book of Judges describes taking place in that cycle. They would abandon God for false gods. They would cry out to him, and he would be faithful to raise up a deliverer because they repented and they wanted to follow after God again. And they would be delivered, and they would follow him until the cycle would begin again. God promised to deliver them if they repented, and this is exactly what took place. Just as God was faithful to his promise to judge, he was also faithful to his promise to deliver. And he delivered through Barak, through Deborah, through Jael. And this song calls for people to praise and worship God in recognition of these revelations. Twice in the song, Deborah says, praise the Lord, bless the Lord, sing this song. I will sing to the Lord because of what he's done. And this is a call for us today as well. We know that the Christian life is not equivalent to easy or pain-free life, but we rest in the promise in Christ that we will not be defeated, that we will not be struck down permanently, and we long for his return where he will call his people to his kingdom, and there will be a freedom from pain and sadness and hurt and death and struggle because we will be in the presence of God for eternity. And we praise God for that. We praise God for the faithfulness to his word in that. We remember that there's nothing in and of ourselves that saved us. We remember that it's only through Christ, the person and work of Jesus, that we were made right before God. And we praise God for this. We respond in praise for that. Jesus has saved those who's repented of their sins and followed after him, and there's none that can snatch us from the hand of God. And we praise God for that. We praise God for his faithfulness in that. Maybe there's a sin you're struggling with. You see, you fight it constantly, but it just won't go away, and it nags at you. Why can't I beat this sin? It just sits there and it tempts me, it tempts me. I'll do good for three months, and then I just give in to it. I can't stop. And you begin to feel hopeless. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as believers, we've been promised the Spirit. And with the Spirit, God enables us to fight that sin. God gives us the power to say no to that sin. 
The temptation may never leave us, but through the power of the Spirit, you can refuse that sin. God is faithful in the Spirit to help us fight it. That it no longer dominates us. It may nag in the back, but it may never dominate us because we have the Spirit. And we praise God for that. We praise God for that revelation of who He is and what He's done for us. As a, as a song I heard this week says, it celebration is best when we have grace we can rest in. We celebrate in Christ because the grace God extends us in Christ. It is that grace that we use to, to respond to Christ through worship. But as the song continues, we see this theme, we see this certainty picked up again in verses 24 and 20, through 27. In these verses, we're poetically retold of what exactly took place with Jael when she killed the enemy. But how is this echoing the theme of God's faithfulness to his promises? How is her killing? How is Jael being the one to kill Sisera, God being faithful to his promise, other than the fact that he's delivered his people? Well, in chapter 4, we're told that Barak had actually been called by God before Deborah calls him to get up and go and deliver Israel. And he was hesitant. Because when he comes to Deborah, she says, Has God not already called you to do this? Get up and go do it. And he says, I'll go, but you have to go with me. She says, I'll go, but just so you know, you're not going to get the glory for this victory. A woman will. A woman will get the victory, uh, get, get the glory for the victory. And if you read it in chapter 4 and into verse 5, you kind of think that she's setting herself up for the, for the glory. But by the end of chapter 4, you realize it's Jael, the one getting the glory. The glory will go to God ultimately because the enemy will fall by the hand of a woman. Not a strong military man, but an innocent tent-making woman. And just a side note, this is not implying that women are inferior to men or lesser than men. The point is that at this time in history, the fact that a woman with absolutely no military experience is the one to kill one of the mightiest men that Israel had ever faced. He was the general of one of the strongest armies that, was ever, in, that ever oppressed Israel. He, she's the one to kill him. That's the point. That when people read this story, they go, the only way this could have happened was because of God. God was the only one who could have strategically placed him in that tent at that moment when her husband wasn't there, who would have protected him because she was the one following God. It's to where we look at the story and go, there's nothing, there's no other explanation but that God is in control. And now we hear in chapter 5 these four verses depicting in song form, the realization of God's faithfulness to his promise, his faithfulness to his word. She was the least expected person of the narrative to deliver the death blow to the enemy. God is the one to receive the glory. Jael is the one called most blessed for this. But look at the imagery in these verses for these lyrics, starting in chapter 26. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank. He fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. What a beautifully horrific picture in a song. Can you imagine singing that on a Sunday morning? 
But what, what should this language remind us of? What, what should start ringing in our ears when we hear this language of crushing, crushing the enemy's head? I pray that it rings in our minds, Genesis 3.15. That the son of the woman would crush the head of Satan, of the serpent. This is a promise that the Old Testament throughout gives small glimpses, small foretastes of the ultimate fulfillment. Someone acting in in accordance with the will of God, destroying the one in opposition to God. One of these being those very texts. You see, the ultimate fulfillment of that promise is in Jesus Christ. You see, we're no better than Israel in Judges. When we're faced with the revelation of God and what He reveals about Himself, we don't like it. We don't want to hear it. We reject it. We ignore it. We may try to adjust it to fit what we want. We don't like the fact that we have to admit that we're sinners. We don't like the fact that we have to admit that there's nothing we can do to make us right before God. We don't like the fact that we're, we're told we are dependent beings. We struggle with the truth that we need God. We're angered when we're told that God's wrath is the punishment for those who do not follow Jesus. That angers us. It doesn't seem fair. But what we need to recognize is that all of this is truth. Every last word. God is holy and he has created all of us. He has called us to submit to his authority, to submit to the kingship of Jesus. But like Israel, we long for something that will never satisfy. We want something better. And by nature, we reject God and his revelation. As sinners, the only thing we're owed is the curse of sin, which is death. And after death, facing God's wrath for eternity. But in Jesus Christ, the ultimate fulfillment of Genesis 15, we are promised a deliverance we could have never gained on our own. We are promised a deliverance from God, from an unexpected deliverer. In His grace and His mercy, God offers us His Son. He offers us His Son to be put on a cross in our place and face the wrath of God so we don't have to for those who trust and repent. Dying on that cross, He was buried only to be raised three days, from, three days later from the grave. And in his resurrection, he stood over Satan. He stood over death. He stood over sin. Just in the way Jael stood over Sisera in our text. Beneath his feet was Satan. Beneath his feet was death. Beneath his feet, crushed was sin. That's why Hebrews 2.14 echoes this saying, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is, the devil. Hebrews 2.14 is echoing the truth that beneath his feet, Satan is crushed. The risen Christ has put sin, death, and Satan between his feet. He has crushed them through his death and resurrection. And those who repent and believe and follow after Jesus no longer have to fear death nor the wrath of God, but they get to rest and hope and celebrate in the grace of God and respond in praise, in worship. And if you have never heard that glorious news, I pray that you talk with myself or you talk with 
just any, anybody in here who, who is a member at Park Hills, and they would be happy to share this glorious truth with you in more detail. You see, God is faithful to his word. He will judge those who do not follow Jesus, but he's faithful to his word in deliverance that those who repent and follow Jesus no longer have to face his wrath. He is faithful to his word, but that's not the only certainty we see in our text this morning. It's not the only certainty that Deborah and Barak sing. The second one is God wars on behalf of his people. You see, in the song, God is recognized as a as a mighty warrior king whom his people are called to follow. And in order to begin to see this theme, we have to jump back to verses 2 and 3. Sorry, 4 and 5. You see, in these verses, Deborah and Barak are moved to praise. They're, they're, they're moved to worship by remember what God has done in the past, about how he led them through the wilderness to Canaan, from Sinai to their present uh, to the present land they are in. And it describes as, as even the, the creation itself testifying to the greatness, to the mighty work of God. The earth shakes, the heavens rain down, the mountains quake. Creation itself is not silent about how mighty God is. And they continue in their song, and they pick up this certainty again in verse 12. And they take it all the way through verse 23. I won't reread those, but in these verses, there are, there are commendations and there are rebukes to God's people based on who helped him in battle. The call to help him in battle had gone out, and there were some who responded, and there were some who, who didn't. And initially, we may, we may not like that phrase, help God. We may not like the, the way it says they, that God asked for help from them. And we need to recognize that God doesn't need their help. And he makes it very clear in verses 19 to 21. Look at at that really quickly with me. The the kings came, meaning foreign kings came, and they fought, then fought the kings of Canaan. At Tanakh, by the waters of Megiddo, they got no spoils of silver. From heaven, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon, march on, my soul. March on with might. The victory over Jabin's army did not come by one-on-one combat with Israel's men. It was a great flood that destroyed the army. They were waiting in a valley to attack Israel, and God brings in a giant flood and wipes the entire army out. God, in his might, destroyed the enemy on his own, but he called his people to follow in faith despite the apparent mismatch. God said, look, I know it doesn't look like you can defeat them, but I'm with you. Fight with me. God puts on display the truth that he is a mighty warrior that Israel needed by showing he's not intimidated by Canaan or by Jabin and his mighty army. And he can easily overthrow anyone who opposes him. He makes it clear by this flood. But the surrounding verses expose who is willing to follow in faith and those who preferred to make excuses. In these verses, we see that the tribes of Ephraim, Benjamin, Makir, Zebulun, Ishkar, and Naphtali, they're all commended for their obedience to follow the call that God has given. But we also see that the tribes of Reuben, Gilead, Dan, and Asher are all rebuked for their idleness and disobedience. They preferred their personal interest 
and their comforts of where they were over the call of God to help in battle for the greater good of Israel. Even worse is Meraz. Verse 23, Meraz is actually cursed by the Lord. There's a specific curse. They're not just rebuked, but they're cursed by God. Not much is actually known about Meraz historically. There's plenty of speculation, but one of the most consistent understandings of why this city, or at least group of people, were cursed is because they were right in the middle of the battle. They were right in the middle where the, where the fight was taking place, and they still decided to sit there and do nothing. The others who were rebuked at least had what we could consider a, a decent excuse. They were far off. They were tending to other things that God had called them to do. And in our flesh, we would say, well, that's at least a decent excuse. It would have taken days for them to get there. But they're still rebuked for their disobedience. But the fact that Miraz was right in the middle, they witnessed it all. God had told them, get up and help and fight. And in the midst of it all, they just sit there and watch. God says, curse this city. Curse these people. They had zero excuse. And this is clear that serving God is actually a form of praise. Serving God is actually a form of worship. It's not just about singing. It's not just about a song. Though God does not need us to fulfill his purposes, he invites us to participate in his divine work. How will they believe if they have not heard, as Romans tells us? We've been called by God to be messengers who proclaim his gospel, the gospel of Jesus. Our faithfulness to evangelism is praise to God. Ephesians 3, 10 and 11, through the church, that's us, believers, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authority in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he had realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Ephesians in that text, Paul in Ephesians in that text is explaining that through our unity as body of believers in Christ, by our union with Christ, as believers in Christ, we get to display God's eternal plan, not just for the world, but for the demonic realm. It's where even demons go, what is going on? How is it that these people get along? They come from different backgrounds, different cultures, yet they get along. There's unity. And so the church can display the manifold wisdom of God. Therefore, we don't forsake the gathering of believers. We continue in discipling relationships, not because it's what the church tells us where to do, not because it makes us feel better, or we like certain people, so that's who we hang out with. We gather as believers and we disciple one another because it proclaims to just to the world and to the spiritual realm God is wise. And in that, we are praising God. God is not calling us to help him in his divine work because he can't complete it on his own. Not because he's lacking, but because he demands obedience. And in our obedience, we bring him glory. In our obedience, we are praising God. We are worshiping God. But finally, this second certainty mirrors the same text as our first certainty back in verses 24 to 27. Again, talking about Jael taking uh, the life 
of Sisera. God, as a mighty warrior king, does not need a huge army to defeat even the mighty general. He took an innocent tent-making woman and made her the hero of this entire battle. As mentioned earlier, these verses should direct our attention to the mighty warrior Jesus who defeated sin, death, and Satan. But we also need to recognize that in the incarnation of Jesus that we just celebrated weeks ago, the kingdom of God began to be revealed. It broke in. And it began to be revealed at his resurrection, and he was given all authority on earth and in heaven. Meaning now, as he sits on his throne, he is King Jesus, and we are called to follow him. So again, if you're here this morning and you are not following King Jesus, if you are not submitting to his kingship, I actually echo the words of Jesus, and I ask you to repent and believe. Repent and believe. And if you're a Christian this morning, let me ask you this. Do you need to repent of your idleness and disobedience? Are you being idle and disobedient in following after God to help display His eternal plan? Are you striving to fight daily your sin with the power of the Spirit? Are you seeking to pursue unity amongst fellow believers to display God's wisdom? Are you embracing the call to spread the gospel through faithful evangelism and discipleship? Brothers and sisters in Christ, let us not be idle when it comes to participating in the divine work of God. Not because he needs our help, but because he's called us to be obedient. So let us not ignore that call. Let us not be idle. Let us do something about that. Let us praise him through obedience. But where does this leave us? Where do, where do these two certainties that we're supposed to respond to God with, where, where does it leave us? We've seen that Deborah and Barak through song have called not only Israel, but all nations. In verse 2, they call all nations to praise God. Specifically responding to God's revelation of his faithfulness to his word and him being a mighty warrior king. And that's led us to the the conclusion that as God reveals himself to us, our only appropriate response should be praise, should be worship. But the key to that conclusion is the phrase, appropriate response. Just because we read his revelation to us does not mean that it guarantees the appropriate response. Just because you hear of who God is and what he's done, is doing, and will do, does not guarantee a response of worship. Faith and hope in that revelation are the connecting thread between the two. This was the issue with Sisera's mother in verses 28 through 30. You see, she would have have heard what God had previously done for Israel. They weren't quiet about what God had done. In fact, he had delivered them in so many amazing ways, it would have been impossible for that news not to travel to other lands. Hey, Israel, something's going on. I mean, Shamgar in in chapter 3 defeats hundreds of people with an ox goad. Okay, by himself. If you think that news didn't travel and people were hearing about that, she would have known what God was doing. She would have known the acts of God. Yet her faith and hope was still placed in a man. Her hope and faith were placed in her son. 
And her poor placement of hope led her to self-deception and false faith. Though she is wicked, as we read these verses, we can somewhat feel for her a little bit. She's curious as to why her son has not returned from battle. And you, can, and you can kind of feel for her. Especially if you're a mother, I'm sure. But we can also understand that her hope isn't a leader who was dead and was not going to come back. She was hopeless. But Jesus, God's son and our king, did not remain dead. Instead, he put to death, death itself, and deserves all of our praise. Cicero's mother was waiting for him to return home so she could praise him and reap the spoils. Jesus defeats death itself and is reigning today, and we get to praise him and reap the, reap the, the spoil of his conquering, which is eternal life spent with God. As one theologian has put it, in heaven, it's all praise. In hell, there is no praise. And on earth, you have a choice. It's my prayer that as we await the return of King Jesus, we do so in a manner of worship. We do so in a manner of praise. That we would express praise to our mighty warrior king who deserves all of it who never fails to fulfill the promises of his word that he's made to his people. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word. We praise you as a faithful God who has revealed yourself as one who wars on behalf of his people. We praise you that you have revealed to us that we need Jesus in whose name we can come before you even now. May our worship and our praise continually be shaped and spurred on by your revelation, by your revelation of your character, your purposes, and your ways, Father. Amen.